0: I just, I've been um, I've been a a good lad this week, and I I've watched some um, some saucy films. And there's one film that I gave up on. Uh, it's the first time it's happened it since we have started doing this.
1: I get film as well this week, so well that be huh? interesting?
0: <laughs> oh really?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just it, it I watched it over two nights, and I, and then this, I won't say what it is, but I came to it, and and then on the third day I said, fell, should we put that back on and finish off?" And she just said. It feels like we've been watching this film for days, and I, yeah, st- <laughs> I just. I <sighs> Watch JFK in the end,
1: then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, this, so this is a saucy one. Um, I- I'll go through mine first, and I- I- I'll keep the one that I-, I gave up on a secret, a final secret in my third album. So, um, even though I released a fourth and fifth album, uh, so I've watched, uh, which I believe you have, the Courier. Unfortunately, so yes. Uh, In the Name of the King 2. Unfortunately so, yes. (laughs) Detox. (laughs) I couldn't hold back. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Uh, Children of the Corn 1. Children of the Corn 2. The Final Sacrifice. Stigmata. Yeah. Stigmata, The Old guard, and the mystery film that I gave up on.
1: Which I'll... Divulge later on. Okay. Well I'll um obviously the courier and in the name of the king two, two worlds. Um <laughs> but I also like the main ones I'm going through this time are Jurassic Park and The Lost World, um Mercury Rising, uh SWAT, mm-hmm. uh, the Sixth Day, The Bounty, uh, The Quick and the Dead, and Mole Rats oh god given it to me i uh, and a few, I got a, a few 2 minute trashings to go along the way as well so we'll we'll get to them it's so yeah so, those
0: mm, they, the film i just realized as you said the full title in the name of the king 2 in the name of the king was a, in the name of the king a dungeon siege tale the sequel is in the name of the king 2 two worlds yes, But two worlds is a separate so they've dropped the dungeon siege name even though it's part of the same thing but two worlds is the name of another sort of uh, set of games on the pc and xbox yes but yeah. it's
1: nothing to do with it so they've just given it the name of another game yeah i didn't really think of that actually because of course um Ball is synonymous with video game adaptations but this one isn't one even though it's got the name of a video game so that's weird yeah it is a bit bizarre um so d- mm-hmm. how do you
0: want to go first? Because you've undoubtedly got more than me.
1: Well, I suppose we, we can kind of stick to the formula and, and go through the ones that we watched together in a way. Oh, I, we didn't watch The Courier together, but we practically did because you watched it and I immediately watched it straight after because I had to. Because I, I had to begged see. you to watch it. I begged you to watch <laughs> that part. It was astonishing. This is a 2019 film on Netflix. <laughs> so it's not. It doesn't even have the... Uh, kind of saving grace of being like 40 years old or whatever. Um, So this is an action thriller, supposedly set in an underground car park, basically. Uh, They do go to a roof at one point, but then they come back to the car park. I think every action film we watch, someone ends up on a roof, whether they mean to or not. (laughs) Weird, isn't it? So Olga Kurilenko is she's protecting a key witness in a case uh, against this wealthy criminal guy played by Gary Oldman. Because um, basically, he saw Gary kill someone. Um, and that's it, really. So she, and then all, and basically, before the trial, like he's trying to, he, all his henchmen are going to kill her and him, basically, the, the witness. Um, and so as she, a final
0: she, twist, the, the person who witnessed uh, Gary Oldman killing someone, he saw Gary Oldman stamping and stamping and stabbing and spitting and shooting at this thing. And then when he leaned over Gary Oldman's shoulder, it was his own career
1: that he was just giving a shooing <laughs> from this and me. What Harry. is Gary Oldman doing in this film? <laughs> not much is the answer. <laughs> he's just <laughs> sitting around, isn't he? Really? He's Steven Segaling it. That is what he's doing. It, it's not. They couldn't even be bothered to develop his character, have him develop his own character. So they introduced his daughter, who basically does all the talking for him. <laughs> And just like, and she's obviously, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and she's horrible. And, but she does all the talking for him. It's weird. Um, It's unbelievably bad. It looks like a really cheap TV show. Yeah. Uh, And there's a guy who looks a bit like Jay Courtney. And... (laughs) He's one of the, genuinely one of the worst actors I've ever seen. Or at least this is one of the worst performances I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's the, the best way of saying it. Overacting. It
0: it's it's almost like he uh, the way I kind of look at it, because he spends the whole film because what we should say is that if you look at like the posters and the trailers, a lot of it is involving like Olga Kurilenko on on a motorbike and the courier and you think it's her and at the start of the film it shows up all these kind of newspaper clippings of like this this kind of mercenary biker woman is going around and kind of stopping drug rings and pedophile rings and stuff and no one knows who she is and then when the film gets going it's just it's just in a car park on foot so instantly like there's you kind of anyone who has been led into the film will just be instantly
1: disappointed yeah. There is actually there is one person who does even less than Gary Alban in this film, that's Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> yes. He just sounds like he's stoned, he doesn't he? Just hanging around an office, isn't he? He does he's always had that kind of mumble thing going on. Yeah. But, uh, it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the script is so bad. Like the banter, the banter between yeah. oh the banter between Olga and uh, Amit Shah, the guy who plays um the witness. At one point she says she she picks up like a henchman's gun and but she can't use it because it's like fingerprint, it's got a fingerprint scanner thing on it. And she goes, Oh shit, it's a smart gun. And the guy says, the witness says, So what? It knows calculus? But uh, on top of that, um all of the henchmen are wearing thick gloves. So yeah. it wouldn't even work that yeah. way anyway. So even so- if even if that joke had been delivered correctly, it wouldn't have been funny, and even then, it still wouldn't have made sense anyway.
0: That's <laughs> such a multi-layered failure on a single <laughs> sentence. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, and ah, uh,
0: you what? mentioned some like reused footage and stuff, like like reversed footage, like really old lazy tricks.
1: Yeah. Oh god, yeah, there was one bit. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. Um, basically, where she. She's in the car park again, obviously. She manages to cut um, cut the power to the light, so it's all dark. And she uh, basically is a guy with a machine gun. And she, she like, sprints through the dark and, like, slashes at him with a knife. And he spins round firing. Um, so you see a shot of him spinning around firing. Then she runs back at him and, like, slashes the other side of him. And he spins around firing again. But all they've done is just reverse the shot of him spinning around firing. So it's the same shot. You can see the background has just flipped. So they've just flipped the shot. It's just unbelievably lazy. Um, also, I was thinking, right, I didn't think too deeply on this film, but, right, if, if Gary Oldman, right, was willing to shoot someone in the head, as we all saw, because that's the whole basis of what's happened, mm-hmm. why Why do they have such an elaborate plan to kill the witness? Because if you remember, he's, the witness is brought to this room at the start. Um, to be uh, and to fill it with cyanide gas yeah And it's like well okay they have to get around the witness protection thing but surely once he's there just shoot him in the head isn't it why why would (laughs) like once they're actually in there they don't have to fill the place with gas they could just shoot him in the head instantly and be done with it or even on the way there or something (laughs) it's weird
0: yeah, they wait till he's in the most sort of secure place to unveil yeah. their plan, which is overly complicated. There's also a lot of problems with like the because you, you see the whole thing is very like televisual, so the mm-hmm. lighting is quite stark and it looks like a kind of sci-fi channel movie. Um, and the, the but they they linger on CG shots more mm-hmm. than they should. Like there's certain moments in it which use like sort of um, more practical effects and they and they're perfectly fine, but then they will kind of just just sort of loiter on CG shots so you can kind of really drink in how bad it looks it's quite <laughs> odd yeah, <laughs> yeah. No
1: choice um yeah the the and there is a big problem with the fact that Olga Kurylenko is, is fine she's a decent actor but she she's tiny mm-hmm. like she she goes up more than once one-on-one against six-foot henchmen, like, really, really buff henchmen in a straight fist fight, and she's not strong enough, she would die. That's all there is to it. Like, there's no... It's, it's, it's not like she's particularly using her uh, greater flexibility or agility to overcome them. It's just straight-on punching, back and forth. Like, yeah. you, you mentioned the part, you said watch out for the part where the guy is literally... Got her by the throat, pinning her up against the wall, both hands around her throat, and she just swipes his hands away. It's like it. It's that silly. wouldn't happen. No, and I thing is, it's annoying because I like to see like uh, a film with a strong female protagonist kicking ass and stuff, but don't do it in a way which is just silly and and ridiculous and unbelievable because that almost that kind of winds the clock back if anything it, it it makes it so ridiculous that you can't you can't possibly believe in it and it does nothing for the for the cause at all
0: no it, it's a shame because like there are some moments when she's really getting a pasting and she'll kind of luck luck out of it by like grabbing something nearby and that's fine yes but when she just takes these people on and still like you're saying straight fist fights, it's just I mean, some of these men are like sort of like tattooed Russian mercenaries that tower like six and a half feet tall. And you think, it, and then she just starts punching them, and and like you say, you just think, mm, I, <laughs> I don't think this fight would end the way that this no. film is going to end it. No. So, it's, but it's just but ridiculous. It's it's a film. It's not. I wouldn't even say it's worth. It's obviously a bad film, but there's so much in it that, like, so much of the dialogue is actively cringeworthy. It actually made me wince when it was when it was sort of. Spoken, and it's just—it's such a weird yeah. mix of, like that, that like Jay Courtney guy, um like overacting by himself in a room and just sweating. Yeah. And you think, what? It's like, what was that performance that Gary Oldman, was? It Leon, where he yeah. was taking drugs and going full on. It's like yeah. he thought, oh, I'm not sharing any scenes with Gary, but I'll just kind of take pills and
1: sweat and twitch. Yeah, this is my homage to him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's one. I, there's one line at the end I had to note down where. She says, she says to the bad guy, the next time I put a bullet in you, it will be the last. That's, that's not a very good piece of dialogue, that. <laughs> it's not the best.
0: No, um, no so it's, it's not a good film. I, and again, this would be, if this were, we were watching this and Gary Oldman wasn't in it, mm. it would just be like a totally throwaway, you know, like sort of straight to DVD movie. But the fact that Gary Oldman is it, in it It gives it this weird gravitas and and so i was questioning everything i was questioning why he was in it i was just questioning what what is happening who has got pictures of gary oldman doing something he shouldn't be (laughs) because like this happened with mary as well this is like the second or well i think it was two weeks ago we talked about mary and you think Mm. why are you in these films gary like these films are nothing like i would think twice if i got that script through my letterbox and that's just holding the boom um, so yeah I no not good not good at all, good to watch and question maybe with a few friends but not not
1: a good film no we also watched In the Name of the King 2, Two Worlds
0: <laughs> nothing <laughs> it to do a with
1: cumbersome it. title isn't it can you imagine if it was based on the sequel though so it would be In the Name of the King 2 Two Worlds 2 that would be amazing <laughs> Um so this is a sequel to a dungeon Seeds tale sort of? Yes. It's completely so different it, though. It doesn't really, it's got nothing to do with it, so I don't know. It's just it's just a medieval fantasy setting. That's it. It's UE Ball again. Um this time Dolph Lundgren goes back in time to fulfill a prophecy. Uh there're two and there are two warring tribes basically and these tribes made up of about a dozen people each maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. And it's and one of the the first tribe he kind of meets is, <laughs> it's led by this king and basically lives in this castle, but it's not even a castle because it's just a wall, a ruins. It's ruins. He lives amongst ruins, and Foam he ruins. just sits outside the entire film. <laughs> he never go, goes indoors because he hasn't got a roof. It's preposterous. I mean, I know there was, It's
0: it's a cheaply made film. But like some of the sets, like when 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 the I was gonna say indoors in the room with like a curtain up, um, that Dolph Lundgren is in, where he just basically systematically gets seduced by beautiful women, yeah. um, it's it, he's so uninterested, and just not <laughs> taking anything. He so the film starts off and he's like he's a sort of um, an ex sort of special forces operative called yeah. Granger, and he teaches. Martial arts to sort of upcoming like, COVID ops or whatever, and he goes back to his his room and he gets some. Someone teleports him from his from his bathroom <laughs> onto a, like a beach in like a medieval fantasy land, and then the woman who teleports him gets stabbed to death, and then he has a vision of her, and then he gets taken to a king, and through none of this, he's like he, he really doesn't seem concerned. No, by and he's not take, and he's wearing this ridiculous scarf. Um, over like a over like a cream, like a cream fleece, and he, it, throughout the whole film he never takes it off. And we realised it's because it is freezing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, the, it's clearly just filmed like on location outdoors somewhere, and every you can see everyone's breath. It's like watching body heat.
1: Constantly... It's constantly <laughs>
0: freezing. <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> yeah, the, the scenery is quite nice. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and and when it does get to the action, I mean, it's the action's decent and it's quite clear what's going on. So that's good, but it is very talky. It's just endless exposition.
0: Uh, Yes. Yes. There's just not
1: enough action, really.
0: And without getting into it because it is needlessly convoluted. The plot is, is oddly like dense. It's, It's oddly full of history. And the, um, the King is played by the sort of, everyone will know this, the bonkers guy from, um, uh, dead man on campus. Uh, so it's the first time I've seen him in ages, and he's he's obviously wearing a syrup in this. But it's yeah. full of like hammy actors. and again, like the, like you said, that it's the the sort of fight sequences, the action sequences are fine. Um, the actors in it themselves are fine. It's quite sort of stagey anyway, so that's okay. But yeah. the sets are where the cheapness shows, and yeah. this king in this like in this like foam, what four walled kind of garden with a gate. Yeah. And he's just, and, and the whole thing of like, when they say, send me, give me, I'll go through the woods with my 10 best men. And you think there's only six of you. <laughs> and then, and then it'll just show like a few guys going to the woods and you think, yeah, this is, don't say things like that. Because
1: it really brings to the fore, like the, the budgetary constraints. Yeah, well, it really rest- doesn't, it really doesn't help the fact that the king is really ruthless. And he'll just, ha- if someone does, steps out of line in any way, he'll just kill him instantly. And yeah, it's, it's like, we like, haven't remember. got enough men to be yeah. doing that.
0: I'd be careful, um, and also that we want. I did want to point out that there is like a, a,
1: a CG dragon there, and it's actually okay.
0: It's, it's right. actually, yeah. I, I quite like. I think the we quite like the design. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It doesn't look too too shoddy because you can. Pointless. Yeah, you can get in in things like this. They can look very very bad, but it's actually okay. You know, yeah. uh, and the women
0: are pretty. They are pretty.
1: Yeah, yeah they, and they have all got full faces of makeup, obviously in the middle of the Middle Ages. Oh yeah. Full makeup, yeah. regular Botox injections, perfect teeth all round. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really taken the film too seriously, and Dolph definitely isn't taking it seriously at all.
0: I'm pretty uh, sure, like he actually, when he's delivering some lines, he's actually smirking. Pretty um,
1: sure, yeah.
0: And that and we've looked as well on the front of the of the DVD case that obviously Chris has got because he's on a, he's trying to get the entire Yui ball collection. Um, it's Dolph dressed as a knight. That never happens. He never
1: gets out of his fleece and jacket in the entire film, even during the love scenes. No, yeah, that's true. Uh so it's not it's not good, but it's way more fun than the courier, for example. Yeah, because it's not taken itself seriously. So at least
0: you can kind of have fun with it as opposed to at it.
1: Okay. So uh now onto the onto the real deal then. Um who wants to begin? This is the question.
0: Well, I'm one of mine is kind of tying over something you did, so I'll quickly do Detox. Um, oh, sure, I, sure. If you don't mind, or I See You, uh, as, as the alternative title is. Now, when you watched this before, I know you said it's just like it's just effectively just a like, pretty crap film, um, mm-hmm. but this is a film that I have watched. Like this, I'm probably coming at the double figures now uh, because I don't know why. It always just seems to be like a really easy watch just to check it on. I, like I said, it's so forgettable that I always forget who the bad guy is. But apparently, um, I, I'm, it, this film was made in 1999 and not released till 2002. So because it's a bit, bit of a dodgy middle ground over our 20-year spoiler rule, I'm not going to give away a spoiler, but apparently in the original cinematic trailer, mm. you see the killer speaking on the phone uh, in a certain accent. And 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 yeah. it just completely gives away who the killer is. It in the film the voice is kind of disguised, so mm. it, instantly it's like, well, that's that the whole the whole when you know the killer is the whole plot it's kind of rendered ridiculous. I mean it's ridiculous anyway. But what I will say is, when I was watching this, obviously we've seen Sylvester Stallone in Cobra, uh, mm. and and you were talking about him in Rambo, and in this film, uh, when he because it, well, the story is that his. He's hunting a serial killer who manages to kill his girlfriend, played by Dina Meyer, always good to see her in films. And he uh, he kind of descends into alcoholism and fair play to him, he does that quite well. He is like a proper shell himself and he's like really trembly and, and really like red-eyed and looks knackered and has no um, energy for anything. And I did like that. Obviously when the film ramps up, he just goes, you know, he's just back to his normal self then. But I did like those few moments when it was just him being a sort of a delicate flower. And I also really like the moment when Charles F. Dutton comes into a bar and and Sylvester Sloane is just sat there drinking shots of tequila by himself. And Charles F. Dutton walks in, slams his gun down on the table, pushes it across to him and says, stop pissing on Mary's memory and blow your brains out like a man. <laughs> <laughs> that is a bold move to someone who was on the brink of
1: suicide. Um so, yeah, counselling session, was it? Uh, no, it is it's, it's quite
0: they go in there when they go to the counselling session it's, like, it's ridiculous. This whole oh my God, the fact insane. that it's like a disused radar facility in it, it, it's supposed to be Wyoming, but it may as well be like the Soviet Union and it's just completely isolated. You've got Chris Christofferson, Robert Patrick, Robert Prosky. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ, I'd like to be there just to sit down and look at these people. This is amazing. <laughs> uh so and Stephen Lang. Oh, and Jeffrey Wright, who actually yeah. plays quite a cool is obviously yeah. a
1: good actor, So um
0: but yeah it's um it's is, it is
1: it, it, it is amazing the cast is incredible for what it is it's yeah. it's really weird for such a generic film. Yeah. Yeah. But um I yeah I I still
0: I still stand by that like it's a perfectly serviceable 90s thriller.
1: Serviceable I, is the word yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah I I yeah I I still enjoy. It. I was, was expecting very 90s. now that I Oh, very very 90s cuz I was watching it to kind of Met, talk about it with you and sort of review it I, I was paying extra attention and I said no, I still kind of don't mind this uh, no, so it's, you...
1: it's fine It's ridiculous and I, I seem to remember that when I was reading up about it um, Sylvester Stallone did have some issues with the way it was marketed so I'm guessing that may have been an allusion to the um, the trailer that you were mentioning, the fact that it just gives away <laughs> who who's the killer it's so is posh, Absolutely ridiculous, especially yeah. in what is effectively a whodunit and going back to what you're saying about Sylvester Stallone, I mean, he can act. The man can. He was nominated for an Oscar after all for Rocky. So, I mean, he, you know, he can do it. But that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but still, he's. Uh, I'm not sure how many awards he's won since then, or been nominated for, but still, um, yeah, I mean, he was good when he rocked up in Creed. So, you know, he can do it. He can put a shift in when he wants to. But again, Creed is still part of the Rocky franchise, isn't it? It's True. but in a in a totally
0: standalone film. Like you yeah. think about him in stuff like Escape Plan and Judge Dredd. And and then you think yeah, but then to yeah. see him in this, you're like, oh, actually no, you can,
1: you know, when you put your mind to it, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good lad. <laughs> yeah. Well see also Nick Cage, I suppose. Um yeah. So um okay, well let, let me just talk about Jurassic Park and The Lost World then. Cause Cause this
0: is of- the in the film. Oh, the first two, right? Okay.
1: Yeah. Um. I mean, we talked a little bit before about how there are no real bad guys in Jurassic Park, and the bad the bad guy, if you like, is humankind's hubris, and and it's all spelt out by Dr. Malcolm Jeff Goldblum in the first film, and that is it really. And my theory is is that well, once you start introducing bad guys, then it becomes less interesting, and. So in, Dr- in the original Jurassic Park, it's, it, is, it is hubris on the part of humanity, um, but it's also an um, in, insufficient IT infrastructure. And, oh and really, actually, the whole thing comes about because there are no locks on the car doors. That's what it comes down to. It's as simple as that. Because basically, if, if the cars that they're going on, because obviously they're going on this tour of Jurassic Park to... Because Hammond brings them in to see if they, you know, if they like the place and whether it's it's kind of marketable or whatever. But they get out at one point, and that's when it starts going wrong. They get out the cars and uh, split up, and and delay everything while the storm rolls in. Now, if they'd had locks on the cars, that wouldn't have happened. They would have got back to the headquarters safely, and everyone would have got off the island. So it's really down to that. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but Jurassic Park it does hold up really well. Like, I, I read somewhere that there are only two practical effects shots in the whole of Jurassic World. Everything else is CG. So you, you had two close-up shots, um, which were practical effects, and wow. and I, I and that made me remember an article I read by one of the. Um, effects artists on the original jurassic park and he was it was written many years later and he was explaining why it is that it still holds up in terms of its spectacle in terms of special effects and that is and it's he explained it's because the approach to special effects was quite different back then especially when it came to cg because it was in early days basically the the kind of uh, approach was that they would use practical effects where possible and cg only where necessary And I'm not sure when what moment the shift occurred, but of course now today is it's almost flipped. Hasn't it? Because, uh, and especially in the early two thousands, frankly, it was when it was at its worst, like it was basically fix it in post or create it in post. In fact. And it was like, okay, well, you know, film it and then we'll fill in the rest later. Sort of thing with the CG and, and I, I think there is a bit of a pushback against that now, thankfully. So we are seeing a bit more, a few more kind of practical effects in certain films. But um, I don't know. It's, it, they only, when, when you look at that stat about the fact that there are only two practical effect shots in the whole of Jurassic World, you kind of see where things are going wrong a bit. Um, because it just, well, well it brings me <laughs> into Lost World, really, because, lost world really really massively ups the cg factor but it looks far less impressive because it's so much of it so much more of it is cg how
0: many years later was uh, the lost world release
1: like was well, it, it was like 95, years 96? Later. yeah um so it was 97 it actually oh. came out because basically after the original film apparently there's a lot of pressure on michael crichton to write a follow-up book mm-hmm. um uh, which he did, so he kind of fast-tracked the follow-up book. But then, actually, apparently they jettisoned most of that anyway. And I did read the original novel, and, and there is a scene where um, in the novel, Hammond is, uh, is eaten by a flock of little dinosaurs, and they do bring that back into the Lost World. But it happens to Peter Stamari in this, actually. Uh, of course, Peter Stamari's in it. I don't think I've
0: ever seen the Lost World.
1: Now it's, it is a failure on many levels, really. It is it is a kind of typical kind of dark second chapter part of that is because it's shot by, um, Janice Kaminsky and he had just worked with Spielberg on Schindler's list. And it's like, okay, (laughs) no wonder it's going to look really dark, but also like the (laughs) script is really uh, grim and cynical. It's about, it's about a bunch of big game hunters basically who, uh, who go to this backup Island, um, uh, which is the not the same island. Well, it's basically where they breed all the dinosaurs, and then those di- the dinosaurs they choose for the park are kind of shipped across, if you like. So anyway, they go to this island um, to capture, kill, or capture the um the dinosaurs for various convoluted reasons. Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum, um, and his girlfriend and his daughter uh, end up on the same island along with Vince Vaughn, naturally. Um, So, and that in itself is a bit of a problem. Not just because it's completely ridiculous that they'd end up there, but the thing is, right? I get that Jeff Goldblum was very popular in the first film, but the reason he worked so well in the first film is because he was like the the charismatic, cynical, sceptical, rational counterpoint to the moral heart of the movie, which was Sam Neil and Laura Dern, of course. But he and as if he's your leading man I don't think it works so well because he hasn't really got anyone to bounce off and, and also his character doesn't really have any development in this film because basically he says he's asked to go to this island for whatever reason and he says ah oh, it's a really bad idea they ate us all last time it's really dangerous and, and he's just right again so it's like well there isn't really any development there it's like yes you are correct excellent <laughs> well, well done Jeff yeah um and surprisingly because it's a Spielberg film it's surprising that the action scenes are so messy messy and that like the the editing in general is actually really poor people characters will just show up in locations for no particular reason especially when they get split up it's like why are you here how did you get here how did you people end up together this and sometimes like characters will literally escape certain like certain death peril but off screen and it's bizarre there's one bit where like the uh uh Jeff Goldblum's girlfriend um played by Julianne Moore and his daughter are asleep in the tent and the tyrannosaurus rex has come back and it, it can smell something on their clothes anyway so it comes sniffing around their tent oh because right? some brown sauce on the collar or something exactly and um so it comes sniffing around the tent and it's like a cr- really like quite intense moment where it actually starts like like the head of the tyrannosaurus comes into the tent and he's sniffing them. So it's obviously like inches from them. So it's like really perilous situation. And then uh, someone else in the camp wakes up, starts screaming. And of course, this sends the Tyrannosaurus absolutely crazy. And there's this slightly comical moment where the Tyrannosaurus like stands up and it's got Julianne Moore's like tent around its head, like wrapped around its head. And obviously, there's going to be people in it. So it's swinging them around. You're thinking, oh my God, they get it here, you know. I was assuming there was going to be a shot where they're like thrown aside or something, but no, it literally just cuts away. And suddenly they're, they're running along. They're fine. They've, it doesn't explain how they got out of that situation. It's like, you can't follow up like a a tense set piece moment like that and not explain how they got out of it. It's just lazy. And somehow they found a shotgun Rupert. (laughs) It is somehow they found a shotgun moment, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, And basically, the whole film is very much structurally the same as like the King Kong story. It is harking back to kind of like the old um, kind of Arthur Conan Doyle type things. Uh, Yeah, and so obviously, you know, team goes to the lost world, they get attacked by local fauna, but they manage to bring the monster back to the mainland, and it runs amok. And so it is basically the kind of King Kong thing, but then at this point. You might as well just watch Peter Jackson's King Kong because it's just better version of the same film. Oh. And uh, might as well just not watch any Jurassic Park sequels because they all suck. Isn't, <laughs> <true>? <laughs> isn't Julia Moore in the third one as well? Um, I can't remember. Tillione is, isn't she? Because she's married to William H. Macy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the third one yeah, is... the film, She keeps looking at him after everything he says and saying, "Are you sure we're married?" Because and then it just this cuts to something feel right
1: somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So... She is pretty. Yes, he is not. I'm just uh, turning into part three. No, it's Taylor only, and Michael Jeter's in it. I thought he passed away by then. Oh, 2003. Bless him.
1: Yeah. I just oh, remember that must have been really close to when he because. Yeah, that must have been really close to when he died because he, when he was in open range, um, Michael Jeter, they literally did all his scenes first because he was so close to um, Brown Bread. Yeah. Yeah, because 2003,
0: age of 50, HIV positive, good health, many years. Uh I'm just looking at this from filmography because I do like Michael Jeter. He's a, he's a cool guy. Um, oh, open range is th- uh, two years after, so 2003.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, um, yeah so jurassic park still holds up still a very charming film full of wonder and and good decent peril and earned sentimentality and good character arcs and development etc lost worlds it's just a series of dumb set pieces really And the thing Uh, is
0: is sam neill is our boy isn't he like when he's in a film
1: that's absolutely fine. So he's always this—he's the centerpiece there, isn't he? <laughs> centerpiece of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, am I okay to smash on?
0: Of course. To Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Um. So I—I I, I had a real—I had a real sense of just thinking. I really want to watch like quite a gothic horror. And there's a few I've got my my peepers on, but I settled on this because Faye said, oh, "I don't think I've ever seen this," and I was quite surprised. So I chucked it on. And I'm gonna obviously it's a retelling of dracula so that's the story but what i want to focus on um is is not this is the thing right i've watched another film um later on which i'll mention uh gabriel byrne and stigmata when we really talk about people's accents right (laughs) but but with keanu reese and winona Ryder, yes they're americans playing english and yes they talk like this and it's kind of plummy and slightly over exaggerated but it's consistent they it's, never slip into American accents and they keep a consistent plummy British accent throughout the whole thing, right. which cannot be said about Anthony Hopkins in that film. Uh-huh. Um, but, but what I was... So that, that's fine. So moving aside from the accents, I know that's what a lot of people tend to focus on. Um, it's a really good film. It like, is, yeah. Excellent. It's really good. Just, um, I watched it and I love, I love the effects. And I think the whole thing... About how the the effects are almost like sort of fifties in how they're achieved, like the blue flame, and the eyes in the sky, and all the kind of um, animatronics and the weird shadow play, um, the kind of weird um, outdatedness of it all makes it seem really gothic, really creepy, and very much in this kind of very sinister, um, foggy world that I was absolutely and
1: completely on board with. Yeah. So, and I, and that was a that was a conscious decision by Francis Ford Coppola as well. I see. I don't
0: know the re- he must have yeah because this yeah I, don't, he,
1: he, oh, I think nice. it was because um I, I don't I don't know whether it was I don't know what it was in honor of but basically he was using he deliberately used only the technology that was available when the when the the first adaptation of Dracula was filmed so Good. yeah so that's why it looks so unusual and cool and stagey I like it I really yeah, like it it's really the even... designs amazing
0: he. Was right. Of course, you got Tom Waits in it as well. Um, as as Renfield just just babbling and shouting for the entire film in the background. Good. Uh, Richard Grant, carrie Elwes. Forgot they were in it. Um, and yeah, the practical effects. Gary Oldman's performance is, is is really cool. Uh, Keanu Reeves' hair, where it goes white, just made me laugh. Um, but I, I think though there is some. There's obviously a surprising amount of comedy in it. Like quite broad mm. comedy. Like when he just when he meets her, she says, Oh, he's been he's been caught by this um when he kind of escapes Dracula's castle and uh he's been caught and then you see him for the first time and he's just got this like ridiculous grey hair where he's obviously been so mortified by what <laughs> he's been through that he's just literally gone white. Um and, and Anthony Hopkins has a lot of like really nice sort of um quips. Uh the two bits that tickle me were when when um when uh they're having a meal after he's been rescued and it's like Winona Ryder who's kind of back with Canary's and Anthony Hopkins who plays Van Helsing. And he's just trying to get a bit of information about Dracula and he says, So when you were when you were with those those the three the three vampire women committing infidelity, and then he just and then kind of glances at Winona Ryder like, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that tickled me. And uh, and then the other bit is when Lucy, who is um, Winona Ryder's like um, Elizabeth Harker's friend, gets killed. Um, they're at the funeral, and she's in this like, glass casket it's very somber, and there's like sort of Gregorian chanting on the background, very really quietly and respectfully. And Anthony Hopkins calls Richard e. Grant over, who's like one of her closest French he's like bereft. And he says, uh, After this, we're going to have to take her um, into my study. And Richard e. Grant says, An autopsy now. And he says, No, 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 no autopsy. I just want to cut off her head and remove her heart. And 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 he just sort of walks back to the funeral, and he's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and that really, and it's like I didn't expect there to be such sort of broad comedy in it. Yeah. Um, so that was good, but it's just a really, really good film, a really solid. And and if anyone is put off by people taking the piss out of the accents, there are far worse accents out there. At oh, least yeah. they're consistent. It's totally not totally the fine.
1: Yeah, and Connery's put on the same accent in Dangerous Liaisons, and you know, that was a good movie too. So is, yeah. And, you know, at least he's trying to uh, push outside his wheelhouse, I suppose. I
0: will quickly say as well that um, obviously, like you say, this the set design is amazing. Anthony Hopkins mm. he is obviously a Welshman, something I, I am familiar with. And when he starts, he starts off with this kind of uh, vague accent. And then it gets very kind of Dutch, very sort of um, European. Mm-hmm. And then, as the film goes on, and he's having more fun, he, he just starts speaking in a Welsh accent. Oh. Uh, and and then it goes like very European again. It's like okay, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I've been paying a lot of attention to accents uh, as as we'll discover when I start talking about Gabriel Byrne and Stigmata later on. Okay. <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to that. Uh, It's a film I've not seen. Uh, So where can we see Dracula? Was that on Prime, Netflix? That was on Prime. Okay. Uh,
0: Detox is uh, on Netflix, I think.
1: Oh, I I, see. Yes, I think it is, yes. In the name Uh, of the King is Prime, and The Courier is Netflix. And the Jurassic Park movies, I think all of them are on Netflix at the moment. I'm not going to watch those. How about that? Um, Okay, let me just do a quick two-minute trashing, then. Uh, Yellow Brick Road, one word, obviously, Why? on Prime. This was made in 2010. Um, so this was recommended on the uh, horror subreddit page. And I've got to learn to stop following these recommendations because they're always bad. And, uh-huh. and this is no exception. And <laughs> it's always someone, basically, will like start a thread saying, oh, I've never been so scared. I've never been scared of a movie until I saw this one. And I watched it. And I thought, you just haven't seen any films, <laughs> but anyway, so the story is in the small town in the nineteen forties, all of the citizens suddenly walked out of the town and into the hills, and there was one mad survivor um but anyway the the rest went mad and they all killed each other. so yeah. this guy and his wife take a documentary team um It's not found footage, is it? It's not found footage. No, you're thinking that. (sighs) They take this documentary team, uh, and one of them looks like Billy Crystal, good. And (laughs) (laughs) and they they take the the hike themselves. And it does start off with this kind of faux-real interview tape um, of that one survivor in a police interview. But then then it switches to fiction. You're kind of expecting it to be found footage at that point, but it's not. Um, So... The, st- the start the opening and the ending are are, are quite okay they're a bit surreal because it's there's just a, a weird.
0: Bit of, the <laughs> films tend to have middles as
1: well Rupert yes unfortunately for the middle hour it just, <coughs> just descends into the kind of bog standard people going into the woods start bickering and arguing and it's the usual lame insanity cliches of people just shouting at themselves and punching their own heads and stuff. And it... Is, is it like, um,
0: is that sort of like that forced drama thing where they start, nothing's there to create drama. So they just bicker to get yes. drama.
1: Yeah. Right. Oh, well, I, I, yeah. But there's also sort of this unseen force. They keep hearing this music and they're trying to find where this music is coming from uh, and they can't find it. So supposedly going loopy like that. And they have numerous like uh, interviews, like, uh on video interviews with the because there's a like a psychologist with them the billy crystal guy in fact and um and he's asking questions and and you know to make sure they're staying sane and they're not basically and then it just kicks off and they all start killing each other basically but it's just really badly done and like when they do start killing each other it's just, just stupid stuff happens like one guy attacks one of the women um, for stealing his hat or something like that. And he like beats her to death and that, which is pretty harsh, but then like just yanks her leg off. And it's like, what? He well, you wouldn't be able to do that. Would you? you? Can't, you can't just do that. Can you? And it's, that's, that's stupid, but it's not the kind of film where it, it's meant to be like dark and disturbing, like all oh, oh, this is convincingly disturbing, but it looks so cheap. The script just sucks. And most of the performances are unconvincing. I'd have to say that the Billy Crystal guy, whose name is Alex Draper, he is quite a good actor. And I'm surprised that his CV is so sparse, really, because he's the only one in it with any real quality. But yeah, just really, really not scary. um, Modern horror with some quite nice, surreal moments at the beginning and the end. But the middle section is just a trudge. How long is the film? Only 90 minutes, maybe, but it felt longer. Yeah. Oh, okay, then. Yeah, That's so don't shame. watch that. That's on Prime if you really want to watch it. Um, all right, I'll, I'll quickly move on then to the next proper one, which is Mercury Rising. Okay. Which is made in 1998. This is the Bruce Willis one. Um, have you seen this one? Is this one with Haley Joel Osmond and he's got some sort of like autism or something? It hasn't got Hayley Haley Osment, but there is a kid with autism. Okay. Of course, yeah, Bruce Willis was in sixth sense with Hayley Dollarsman around the same time. Right. Who's um, the kid in this then? don't know. He, although, I think he might have, he got, I think he was nominated for some awards because he's pretty good in it. Uh, I'm not sure about the representation of autism. I mean, it, it's a very Hollywood thing because, well, you'll just hear from the plot how Hollywood it is. So, this autistic kid randomly works out a government code right so there you go uh, that's what autistic people do um so this NSA agency led by Alec uh, Alec Baldwin um decides to track him down and kill him the kid Bruce Willis a disgraced cop is the only one who can take care of the kid just because he's in the right place at the right time um now it's quite nicely shot and edited who and directed this story? I'm not sure. It's someone I've not heard of. Oh, not okay. It's so, famous. Uh, it's got really nice uh, score by John Barry. So they're, they're the good parts. But the script is a real clunker. And, and you can tell when it's a bad script because when the basic premise doesn't make any sense. Because, okay, so this kid cracks this code, right? right. Um, and instead of this a uh, this secretive government agency, instead of them deciding to right say devise a better code for example because it's been hacked they simply decide he has to die so they kick off and make a massive fuss and cause loads of damage and destruction and chase him around the country when really surely i mean the kid doesn't know he's cracked a code he he does it in this like puzzle magazine which um which was done as an in joke by the people working with the agency sort of thing and he just randomly Um, cracks the code in this puzzle magazine and phones this number and they're like really shocked they say oh my god someone's cracked the code they find out that it's this autistic kid and they're like well he probably doesn't know what he's done he's not going to know that this is some government code he's probably just phoned this number but then Alec Baldwin is like oh no no we better get a massive team on it and shoot the place up so it doesn't make any sense
0: yeah because what they could have done is just told the kid to put the phone down and he would have just thought oh that's that then and then not bothered with it and then they could have just
1: changed the code Yeah, because this is you know he's a heavily autistic child non-verbal mostly and it's like so yeah anyway I mean yeah like this it doesn't fix the problem that is identified by Alec Baldwin in the first place because he says okay what happens if someone else cracks the code so he's he's pointed out just there the problem is that the code is crackable not that this specific kid cracked it so but even if they do kill the kid the code is still in place so someone else can crack it so killing the kid does nothing anyway so <laughs> so this constant ridiculous decisions by characters um like for example where bruce willis is like obviously escorting this kid around and the agents after him and stuff and he just he goes into this coffee shop and just enlists the help of this woman, um, played by Kim Dickens. And she, and he just throws all of his trust into a complete stranger, a complete and total stranger. And then, so she tries to look after him, kind of fails because she she's obviously in over her head. But then he, and then Bruce Willis comes back to her, keeps hassling her, finds out where she lives um, and comes to her in the middle of the night, refusing to take no for an answer at her door. She would call the police, but she doesn't. Um, she's, and she asked, She says to him, why do you keep coming back to me? Because there's no reason for it. And he says, oh, you just seem like a nice person. That's his rationale. Absolutely no evidence of this. So, yeah. Um, what about like, the actress? I guess it's like an action chase film. So pretty pedestrian action scenes. But again, even they don't really make sense. There's one bit where he meets this he meets this cryptographer guy who is like, wants to warn him, that sort of thing. They say meet in a public place in a big crowd, right? And he's walking, Bruce is walking along with him and the, the cryptographer is explaining, you know, you're in big trouble, et cetera. It's government agency and all that. And this FBI assassin guy, this agency, uh, send this assassin to go get him, right? He goes up to them and he shoots the cryptographer dead, right, shoots him in the back, but doesn't shoot Bruce. They're standing next to each other. He's, he's got the jump on them. He shoots the cryptographer. And then, obviously, Bruce Willis turns around to, to, to thinking, well, you know, who did that? And he turns around. And the guy, the assassin, is just running off, barging people in the crowd. It's like, what? Why didn't you just shoot Bruce? Bruce Willis is your target. Why aren't you yeah, shooting him? Sh- it? <laughs> it's bizarre. Like, why? And then making even more of a fuss, you know, barging people out of the way. And then all, it all kicks off. Oh, Peter Stamari is in this film as well for about a nanosecond. <laughs> Literally he is he's I don't think he even says anything.
0: <laughs> yeah. Does it cut to him and he answers through the door and he just goes
1: and then it just cuts back? Well he's like a he's like a henchman guy and he gets um he has a fight which lasts about three seconds with um Bruce and just gets thrown off a train and that's it, dead. Jesus yeah. yeah. So it's like yeah, it's not particularly exciting in terms of action. Bruce Willis is sleepwalking through it. Um <sighs> the <that's> already <sighs> begun. Yeah. And uh it just none of it makes any sense. So <laughs> it's, it just sounds is it is the ending really sentimental as well or oh yeah, oh yeah. Because there's this <laughs> constant ah uh, yeah, there's this constant like repeated line where the kid has uh, obviously been uh... told by his parents, um right. Uh you don't talk to strangers. So uh, he, the kid keeps repeating to himself, like um, whatever Bruce Willis's name is, Bruce Willis is a stranger. And whenever Bruce tries to get through to him, he goes, Bruce Willis is a stranger. And it's like, and, and then, you know, at the end, of course, it's like, uh, Bruce Willis is a friend. It's like,
0: Bruce Willis is doing an impression of Dennis Leary as Edgar Friendly in Demolition Man. Are <laughs> they the final
1: words to the film? <laughs> they are actually. It's a bit, of a, yeah, I thought it was a bit of a weird, enigmatic ending. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so Mercury uh, Rising now on Netflix. Don't bother.
0: Uh, I'll move on to my. I'm just doing these in order, by the way. So yeah, um, they the I've got them here. Um, so the next one I'm going to talk about is Children. I've got two. So. <laughs> Children of the Corn, the first film, um, from 1984, uh, starring Peter Horton, who was voted one of the sexiest people in the world in 1991. And when you look at a picture of him, you will question that fact. And Linda Hamilton. Interesting, because I was saying to you a few weeks ago, actually, on this podcast, that I haven't seen many films with Linda Hamilton starring, apart from Terminator, and obviously Retroactive, 1996 with James Belushi. And I was sort of... Faye said do you fancy watching all 10 Children of the Corn films? <laughs> I mean, who could <laughs> say no to that? So, uh, we made to start? And, yeah, Children of the Corn, so 1984, and it's based on a Stephen King short story from, I think it's his 1976 book, Night Shift, or 1979. Uh, and it, it's the usual thing where there's like, I'm I'm not a big Stephen King fan anyway, but it's like a relatively short, flimsy story folk horror thing and then they fleshed it out into literally like a tetralogy of films um so this is this starts off with peter horton and um linda hamilton were kind of like a young couple and he's driving to it to, to sort of to be like a medical intern at a, at a, at a town uh i think it's called hemmingford the town he's heading for and they stop in gatlin on the way because all the signs are weird and they they sort of get lost so they stop in this town called gatlin where they can't find any adults and only the, they can only see these kind of kids roaming around. And obviously the kids are completely bonkers. So it's like an interesting, and I like it because it's a very simple setup and yeah. for like horrors like this, like the simpler, the better really. Mm. Um, and the, the two, the two sort of main um, antagonists, John Franklin, who plays Isaac, I think his name's like Isaac Croker or something, but um, yes, yeah, so or Isaac, who is, uh, I think the actor who plays him has some sort of illness where he's actually 24, 25. He's got this quite strange high-pitched voice, but he's playing a child in this film. Um, And his right-hand man, played by someone called Courtney Gaines, who plays a guy called Malachi. And what's really... And this kind of leads on into the second one. What's what's very important about this is Isaac, because it is effectively a child playing an adult, it's kind of inherently creepy because of how he is and because of this weird... um, Sort of like
1: forceful personality he's got through like a childlike physique. I um, yeah, I remember watching it because I didn't, I did not realize he was actually an adult, and I thought this he's weirdly commanding for a child. Yeah. That's really odd. Like yeah. when
0: he talks to them and he's shouting, it's like it's like an adult shouting at another lesser adult sort of thing. And Courtney Gaines of Blaze Malachi is a very uh, unique looking man in not least of all in this, because he's got like shoulder length, like bright ginger hair. And he's got like um, kind of a permanent balm. So it's like uh, he's, he's, he's got it's, it's like a very sort of toothy performance. And he is completely dedicated to Isaac. And he is quite a threatening guy. And because he's kind of uh, slightly odd looking, that's sort of sticks in your mind and i was surprised because when the film started i thought ah is this going to be like total crap but you'd never they always they worship this thing called the he who walks behind the rose and in a key move you never see it Mm. you kind of see things from its perspective and there are hints of it and at the end there's a slightly dodgy visual effect but you never Mm. see it um so that's quite cool, and and the 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 way that the um there's like some nice bickering that they do, with Peter Horton yeah. and and um, Linda Hamilton. That's kind of quite believable. It's not just like a total like they you know the total simple love story that, they, they do kind of bicker and it is a little bit realistic. So they have some chemistry, and uh, it's just a like quite a nice little. It's like ninety minutes long. Boom, 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 mm. and it's just a nice little ladies' horror.
1: Yeah, I did. I I remember enjoying it, uh, up to a point. Definitely. I I remember thinking. Obviously, I watched it quite quite recently, and thinking, how could they possibly stretch this out to ten films or whatever it is? Have you got uh, Well, I'll find out for you.
0: Okay. But but yeah, there is um, and it's like like you say at the end. There's like an an earned kind of sentimentality, like because because they find these two kids who aren't really involved in the whole cult thing. Um, and they, they sort of take them under their wing, they, that ends up quite nicely. But again, it's a, it's like, because Linda Hamilton is such a nice, innocent person, mm. it's not like they're in this ridiculous situation, and you think, why would this really happen, though? That comes into
1: play in the second film. Um, Linda Hamilton is very good. Yes, yes, I'm learning this. A L- little yeah. bit late, but you know, nonetheless. She's good in everything she's in. I mean, I know she's uh, been in a fair amount of trash, but she always elevates it.
0: Um, so I, I'll let you smash on because I've got. I'll do Children of the Corn 2 after you. You sure? You sure you don't want to go slipping straight into so, it? Well, okay, I'll I'll slip straight into it because yeah, it does. So Children of the Corn two is 1993. So in real life, it's nine years later. But in in Gatlin in the town, it appears to be set like a day or two later because obviously the end of the film it Then the Hamilton and Peter Horton survive and they drive off, and the next film starts in back in Gatlin, and the town where all the adults are dead and it starts with all the adults sort of cadavers being discovered under, under the various houses and they've been dead for months now pushing aside the whole question of like that just even in a rural American town that would not happen because if you think about it, okay, all the adults are dead. Okay. So it's just the kids, but p- people would pass through, um, like mm. delivery drivers. It just wouldn't, it's not realistic. So pushing that out the way, um, there's a news reporter at the start that says, you know, the police are just arriving, the press is just kind of coming down on Gatlin. So it's obviously very soon after the events of the first film in the, the film world. Yeah. And so if you imagine, right, there's a group of children. Um, in, in the first one, there's quite a lot, but in this one, it boils down to, like, say, 10 or 12 that, it, that are sort of the focus. And it starts off with them getting basically looked over by a doctor. And bearing in mind, they've, they know that they've slaughtered the entire like adult population of a not a village a town and have been like like hidden them under the floorboard sort of thing the first thing they do is just put them on a school bus and just plonk them in the town two miles down the road and just put them up with adoptive families they Mm -hmm. don't there's no punishment at all right and this is a theme that runs through the entire film it's the film is only like 90 minutes long and it's it's fast paced not in that it's fast fast sort of quickly edited. It's fast pacing that the speed that the events in the film work at is astonishing. To the point that I was sometimes like, hang on. And and you just have you think about what's happening on screen. Think, that would these are things that would take months. Anyway, <laughs> so they got on a school bus, they go and <laughs> they just get adopted by these families in, in Hemmingford, the town that they were trying to get to in the first film. And there's a couple of people that say, I don't I don't want to like my, I don't want my bed and breakfast like having these kids moving in as I'd, right. I'd, they've just murdered. I don't want this. <laughs> and everyone else. <laughs> They're really s- creepy. Don't be silly. It's so like the- a biblical cult. You've just put yeah. Down. yeah Just get in. The, get in the B and B. So the kids are all settled in these different houses uh, anyway. And through this, uh, a guy who looks suspiciously like a chubby Bill Pullman and his son just drive up he's like kind of a failed reporter and his son's taking the piss out of him to the point that it's irritating it's it's just like like in the film i just thought just hit him just just attack your son just to shut him up um attack him with anything uh so he'll stop quipping and calling you a loser so this guy (laughs) this guy is clearly in his mid-40s right he's like lined around the eyes going a bit gray like quite filled out and his son is clearly in his mid-twenties, right? But he says, he says, you're just a kid. At one point, he says, shut up, don't talk to me like that. I'm your father, you're just a kid. Hmm. And the kid, so you're thinking, right, she's 16. And then, in the same line, the father says, well, you know, I know I wasn't around much, but, you know, you're a mistake, I was only 17. And I thought, hang on, she so was 17 when you had him, he's 16 now, and you were meant to be 33? <laughs> It is astonishing the fact they draw such attention to it. Anyway, so he's kind of a bit of a goes around the town trying to uh, solve, you know, to get some news basically for the, the rag he worked for. Yeah. And he stays in this bed and breakfast with a woman who is initially like really distrustful of him and thinks, are well, you just here to like take advantage of these these children who she believes have kind of been wronged. They have no chemistry and within a, within a night they're sleeping together. And they have this really horrible, really wet, sweaty sex scene. Um, they just fades into them with like a saxophone background and they are drenched and it's buzzing and you're like oh come on guys anyway so this is indicative of the film's problems is things happen really really quickly and also it's interspersed the kids kind of reforming the cult in the in the, the sort of cornfields behind the house is intercut with this guy going around and basically meeting like a wise indian in the school and then him talking about ancient ancient writings on a hill about something that and you're like don't you're overcomplic you're instantly overcomplicating and taking away what was good about the first film you that um, simplicity yeah and uh, um,
1: simplicity in that mystery yeah
0: and, and what happens is it, it ends as whereas in the first film you're kind of seeing the aftermath of the children killing the, the town this time you're kind of seeing it happen you're seeing them going around and like there's a woman who gets crushed underneath the house You see it happening there's a quite a buzzing scene in a church where they do a voodoo doll of this guy and he just keeps on stabbing it in the face and the guy just like bleeds to death through like the orifices in his in his visage and you're like okay um so that the gore in it is like if you're a gore fan there's there's some nice gore in it but what happens is because it's a retread whereas you get isaac and malachi in the first one in this one you still have malachi but it's played by a different actor who is just has no charisma and the the main the main guy who replaces isaac as the kind of the leader of this this child cult it just hasn't, he's okay, but he hasn't got the same effect. So mm. it's very much a lessened version of the first film. And it also a, a real problem with this is that the other children, I, I don't even know if they're actors because sometimes, because all the kids are always together. That's the thing, they, they move as a kind of one unit and they're always doing these creepy things. A lot of them are just sort of standing there. like It's like, they don't even know how to stand. Like, they're like always fidgeting and like looking around, and you think you, you don't so really. So, they trained at the Al Cliver School then. Al <laughs> yeah, Cliver's Academy of Acting. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just not very good. It's just, it, it, they, yeah. they should really. I mean, I don't know what the other eight. Are you going like. to
1: keep pushing through to the the rest of them?
0: Yes, because apparently the third one is uh, Urban Harvest, is supposed to be the best in the entire series.
1: Right? Okay.
0: But, um, yeah, Children of the Corn, good. Children of the Corn, too, not good.
1: Okay. Are they on Prime? Probably.
0: Uh they are on Prime, yes.
1: Okay. Um I might yeah, I might follow you on this journey. I don't know or maybe I'll just skip to 3. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't uh, think you'll have the patience. Yeah. For, <laughs> for I didn't I I, I quite like the first one. So the idea of it just being a bad version of that. Yeah. Um right. Okay, let's I'll do another 2-minute trash in here. Oh, yeah. Um this is Arena. Um and I think, hang on, the 1985 kind of like battle film in space. It is 1989, please, which wow. do, which is an important fact, actually. So this <laughs> is a really cheesy sci-fi fantasy action for, uh, film. Um, it, it, in terms of kind of retro future production design, it actually looks more like a 70s sci-fi film because there's a lot of like shiny makeup and a lot of brown fittings and foil cloaks and stuff. So it really looks like an episode of Battlestar Galactica. Um, It certainly looks interesting and it is consistently, consistently kind of ridiculous in the way that it it decked out. It's quite a standard gladiator type story. It's amateur fighter is seduced into the arena by, um, by these supposed aliens, but they look like humans. They stand to earn a lot of money from his success. Or I remember all of the aliens being suspiciously humanoid in shape. In that yes. Uh, and there's this concurrent subplot about the alien organizers who don't look like humans, uh, manipulating the, the, the handicapped system to see him taken down. Because he's like the first human who's been fighting in this arena. Uh, yeah. So he fights various monsters and they're quite, they're quite cool in their design if not their execution. The problem is, is that they're quite elaborate creatures design. So you'll have like these big spider-like creatures, which, and the puppets look really good, but of course they can't really hit each other. They can't because, fight, yeah. Yeah, so you just got quite boring fight scenes where he's just swinging punches at, at like a big plastic like doll, really. Um, and, it's, and a lot of the context is kind of done through sound and there's not much dynamism to the whole thing, so. Um, not much interesting to say about it, to be honest. I mean, it, it you really just watch it for the completely bizarre, like costume design and stuff. Uh, Claudia Christian is his manager, and I thought I recognise her voice, and I checked out uh, checked out her CV, and she does a lot of work in video games. So she does like Skyrim, World of Warcraft, Fallout, stuff like that. So oh, nice! I did recognise her voice. Oh, um, I to... yeah. So in terms of like the design, there are loads of kind of visual ideas. But in terms of the script and the characterization and the action, it doesn't really have anything to offer. So probably just worth it for the look of it. But keep the sound down, perhaps. Um, um, before yeah. you
0: move on, I will just quickly say that uh, I, I forgot to say that Fritz Kiesch, the person who directed the first Children of the Corn film, also directed Tough Turf the following year, which you mentioned oh. a couple of weeks ago. That's yeah. and tellingly, the person who directed Children of the Corn 2 w- did a load of MC Hammer music videos <laughs> and then nothing
1: <laughs> yeah well there you go that's what it is i mean uh yeah i enjoyed tough turf so that makes sense um okay what i'll move on to my next proper choice which is swat and this is on prime this was made in 2003 written by david ayer again uh okay. and this is apparently it's based on a 70s tv series Pfft. And of course, at one point, one of the characters watches the original TV series on TV. That's anyway, so this it starts off with a hostage mission goes wrong. Uh, Jeremy Renner shoots hostage. Uh, uh, Colin Farrell and Renner are blamed. Basically, they and they're given an ultimatum that they are that they be demoted and work their way back up, or they're fired. Basically, and Renner won't accept the demotion, so he's fired. But Farrell um he go, he gets demoted and becomes like a gun range janitor so this ex marine um played by Samuel L Jackson he is an old hand and he's he's looking to put together a, a squad of talented young people and he he likes farrell so he picks him up and they they basically he builds up this little squad including ll cool Jane, naturally south central bruiser um <laughs> Then there's this vegan guy and there's uh, there's this uh, woman called Sanchez, played by Michelle Rodriguez, who I like a lot. Um, yeah, um, basically they arrest this very wealthy criminal. And when as he's being arrested, he publicly offers $100 million to anyone who can break him out of prison. So Samuel L. Jackson's squad has to escort this uh, person of interest to a federal prison in the desert. Does anyone uh, we know play this this person? No, I don't think so. Uh, no one is springs to uh, The actor doesn't spring to mind. But um, So basically, yeah. So they've got the problem of the fact that you've got all these gangsters coming after them to obviously break them free because they want $100 million. Um, but then on top of that, can the whole squad be trusted? That's the thing. Um, so is there could be someone in the squad who might sell them out to take the money. So it doesn't take itself too seriously, which is quite surprising given David Ayer's usual output. Cause he, he does make some pretty serious movies, um, or at least grim faced movies. Anyway, uh, the characterization is, is decent enough. Um, it, I think the, the kind of lightness of it, the lightness of touch does mean it has this kind of sense more of kind of kids playing cops and robbers, uh, more than there's no real heed paid to the consequences of what's going on, and there's very little kind of value given to the human life in it um, okay. yeah and uh yeah and and I think the most disappointing bit is that it, it sets it all up quite well, and there's some quite cool like training sequences in that and and it's quite a good premise to have it so that they they're having to escort this guy but but then actually, the final act is really just quite a boring chase sequence in the dark and I was expecting there to be a finale which really kind of makes use of their SWAT training and their teamwork and individual skills, but really they're just quite clever cops, really. Um, yeah, it was a bit disappointing in that regard, because it, it sets, the whole setup is quite good, but then the last act, it just it goes down quite a generic disappointing slightly boring. You kind work. of, have,
0: I was really excited then, and I was yeah. thinking I might
1: watch this later on, and then yeah, a disappointing
0: ending, which is a shame.
1: Yeah, I mean it's not, it's not terrible and yeah I I mean Colin Farrell's fine uh Samuel L. Jackson's quite quite cool I, I like Michelle Rodriguez they're, they're all it's all fine but it doesn't really have it's probably too lightweight to resonate in the way that like say Training Day or Street Kings does it doesn't really raise any of those kind of uh moral issues yeah so it's more of a just kind of very silly action movie and Maybe if I watched it again, I'd enjoy it more, knowing that perhaps just accepting that it's just not meant to be taken seriously. Okay. So yeah, I, it's probably worth I, a watch.
0: Out of all those, yeah, I think I'd be more likely, and I, I am going to watch Street Kings first. Yeah, I think. I think so. What did you see that on? Sorry, that was on Prime. Prime. I might watch. It. It's and Street Kings on Prime as well. I guess. I believe so. Yes. Um, So the next one I've got here is Stigmata from 1999, starring Gabriel Byrne and Patricia Arquette. Um, And this is an odd, odd film, uh, because it could have been something really, really interesting, and it just isn't. (laughs) Um, So so you've never seen this, have you? No. Um, So this is... um, The story is that... um, stigmata is it, it, basically people who are so pious and deeply religious that they actually, um, supposedly get afflicted with the wounds of Christ. So the, 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 yeah. the, the nails through the hands and feet, uh, the crown of thorns whips on the back. And eventually the thing that made him pinch the bridge of his nose in discomfort, a spear shoved through his side. So, <sighs> um, nail. I was watching this and Jonathan price is in it. Good. He is probably the best thing in the film. So, Gabriel Byrne plays someone who works at the Vatican, and he's a scientist, but also, like, his faith has sort of been lost a bit, but he works for the Vatican still, and he goes around the world basically investigating mi- m- supposed miracles. So, and then he sort of debunks them, and Jonathan Price is the head of the church, the cardinal of the church. Um, and this at the start he's in a place in Brazil and Patricia Raquette is like happens to be at like a stall outside in like a market and a, the, a, a much loved local priest has died and the, when he died the statue of Mary started weeping blood and a child comes in from, the open, from the open casket and then just flogs it to Rosanna Raquette in the market for a bit of cash you know as just a trinket she's like oh this is nice thanks and she goes back to Pittsburgh uh so what happens is um, I've got his name, Gabriel Byrne as as Father Andrew Keenan turns up, and he goes back to Jonathan Price and says, "Look, I think this is actually a miracle because the, it it is actually weeping blood. There's no, I you know I've looked into We need to look into it further, but from what I can see, it it is actually a statue that that weeps blood over the the death of this vicar uh, priest. And Jonathan Price, he's really good in this film because he's really quick and he shuts conversations down really quickly and really cleverly." Mm-hmm. Um, And so he just sort of says to, just looks looks at Gabriel Byrne and like says, "Oh, you know, blah blah, leave with me. You're not going. To, you're going to Pittsburgh." And he just, the moment there's a hint that something could be real, he completely gets him off it. Um, And Rosanna Raquette in Pittsburgh, as she works in a sort of salon, starts getting starts getting the, these sort of uh, stigmata wounds. Like she gets the the wrists and feet won't stop bleeding, and uh, Gabriel Byrne goes there to sort of try and look into if it's a real miracle and help her. And obviously he ends up just falling in love with her. Mm. There are a lot of problems with this film. Um, one of them, Gabriel Byrne's accent, considering he's supposed to be an Italian priest who speaks with a suspiciously American accent, covering up an Irish accent. <laughs> uh, uh, there's no reason. There's no reason why he wouldn't just be an Irish priest who's moved to the Vatican. There's no reason for it. So you spend the yeah. whole film. It's not like film.
1: Ireland's like not known to the Catholic. Not a Catholic
0: country. Yeah, it's <laughs> bizarre. Um. So yeah. So w- what happens is the director of this, uh, Rupert Wainwright, your namesake. He's, sorry, I made a mistake on he is the one who directed a lot of MC Hammer videos. He came in. This is his, one of his first feature films from a lot of music videos, and it shows because. Uh, uh, so uh, there's another side of the f- film which i need to explain for this to sort of make sense so there's another part of the film w- which is sort of tied into the main bit where it, it this father who died who started this maybe it's a miracle maybe it's not sort of weeping statue had supposedly discovered and was deciphering um and, and uh, as sort of the gospel of saint thomas and it basically says that you don't need a church you, you're like god, god god is inside you And your connection is directly to God. And they're supposedly the words of Christ. And what's happening is you've got that side of it. And there's a sense that Jonathan Price as the head of the church knows this and knows these are the words of Jesus. But because it would completely undermine the last 2,000 years of the church and Mm. remove them and lose all the power. And he keeps referring to it as like my church. He is trying to sort of block that. Now, if this film was made in the 70s, it would be a really kind of slow paced and Sort of cerebral look at the impact of of that, which is an interesting enough story in itself, you know. But because it's made in the late '90s by someone who directed music videos, it's it's they focus on like as opposed to the more um, cerebral kind of theological aspects and more interesting parts Mm. of it. They instead focus on like the fact that um, Gabriel Byrne is falling in love with Patricia Arquette and every single as much every time anyone is doing it it like walks above a jaunt it turns into a chase sequence and car crashes for no reason <laughs> and like loads of like really flashy loads of flashy uh, like overlaid editing with awful electronic like rock dance music over the top it was a bad time for horror it was Honestly. A bad time. There's, there's a there's a bit where um in the film where she starts getting the the, the sort of um, the wounds from the crown of thorns on her head in, in like a nightclub. She's not battering or anything. It's like eight o'clock, she's had one sip of wine. She starts bleeding and she runs out into the street and the editing just cuts and this suddenly this, this really frantic like dance rock track over the top. And mm-hmm. she's running through and cars are slamming into each other. And then her friends what? chasing after her saying, what? where are you going? And she's screaming and running around. And I thought this is just like, it's like he's tried to make it into a chase sequence. Yeah. And it happens quite often in the film. Um, at the like again it's the same problem of at the end it just get it just explodes instead of getting explored where it's just mm. like oh well, okay it's a horror film so something big's got to happen at the end and more so than that fundamentally when you break it down the, the, a lot of what's happening really doesn't make sense in in that it's going to be a little bit spoilerific but obviously with with uh, Patricia Arquette being uh, possessed by the by the, this dead priest through the rosary sort of thing, he hmm. is someone who wanted to expose the church and say, you know, and basically get people on a more personal relationship with Christ and God sort of thing. Hmm. But, so why would he go through this by possessing someone and like torturing them and? And, like, and hiding his true goal and, and writing on walls in Aramaic. And you're like, what? what? Like you're just making this as complicated as possible. And yeah. as, a, as an aside, she works in a salon in Pittsburgh, right? And her apartment is massive. It is massive. And also it's like it's every single set in the film is constantly lit by hundreds of candles. There's a scene in it where she goes bonkers in her apartment and and water constantly dripping through the ceiling as well. Like you call your landlord Um, and (laughs) and she destroys her apartment. And then she kind of wears herself out and then it kind of fades out, fades in, and Gabriel Burns, like, you know, mopping her head. She, and he's put her bed back together. And yes, he apparently has gone out and bought loads of hundreds of multicolored candles and then gone through the trouble of lighting them all again <laughs> and placing them around there. like why this looks it looks ridiculous. So yeah, it's just it's just a preposterous film. Is they should worth, have just focused. Is, am I gonna watch it? I think you should, because there's so many like it's like he's trying. It's like he thought, "Oh, maybe, maybe if I if I get the music ramped up enough and like edit it faster, people will think it's an action film. One when, mm. when really that's the antithesis of what it shouldn't be." So it's uh, Billy Corgan from the Smash Smashing Moments does the music, and it, it's just yeah, it doesn't sound like the right choice. So, now, it's worth it just because it's such a. It could you you know if it was made twenty years before, it could have been a really interesting film. But yeah, it's just not it's focused on all the trashy aspects of it. Yeah. I will say though that Patricia Arquette is pretty.
1: Yes. She was really good in a in her day. I don't know where she's gone, to be honest. I there's
0: don't... there's a scene in it at the start where uh sorry to interrupt, but um I just reminded myself where Gabriel Byrne turns up at a salon and obviously I, I did I did the math and he is forty nine and she is thirty two in real life, but she he's playing someone who's 23 and she can get away with it. She's really pretty and young. So he walks in looking 50 years old and sits down and, um, she says, Oh, can I call you something else apart from father? It seems strange to call someone father that I want to date.
1: Wow. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know. It's a bit of an Edmund moment, isn't it?
0: Yes. (sighs) So yeah, it's worth it. Just, just to sort of marvel at what
1: could have been. Yes. And yet what is, um, Uh, okay, quick couple of two minute trashings then, because nice. they're kind of vaguely related. Uh, Mortal Kombat on hey. Prime 1995. Uh, Shang Tsung and his evil denizens of Outworld. I think it's called Outworld. Uh, they've won nine Mortal Kombat tournaments in a row, and if they win the 10th, then they'll be able to invade Earth. Lyndon Ashby, Carrie Tagawa, the guy who's now in the Man in the High Castle, Robin Shu. Christopher Lambert, Bridget Wilson, Trevor Goddard, Trevor Goddard, they're all there to kick ass and stop them um, in a tournament. Uh, and it's quite good. Like, <laughs> all, of, all of the actors seem to be on the same page. That is something which is quite crucial in a film like this, that they know it's not meant to be taken too seriously, and they're kind of all overacting, and there's a lot of... The whole film doesn't take itself very seriously. Like, it's totally quite spot on, really, or at least totally consistent. Like, I love the bit where Raiden, uh, Christopher Lambert, goes yeah. on about how the fate of billions rests upon you, and then he starts laughing maniacally, and then he kind of just stops himself and goes, Oh, sorry about that.
0: Yeah, and he's got an amazing laugh because he's like, The fate yeah. of billions
1: rests on you. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a little cackle.
0: He sounds like he needs to take his asthma pump in this film all the it time. It is
1: ridiculous. His voice is outrageous. Uh, <laughs> and it was only made a year after Street Fighter, and it's infinitely superior. Yeah. Superior. Uh, and I, I really like the production design and the lighting. It kind of gives everything a kind of this sort of plastic, faux, spiritual Far East vibe. Um, the CG is bad. <laughs> Really bad, like there's a whole city creature which they keep showing, and that looks awful. Um, but then they got Goro, the how many arms has he got? Eight, four, four? yeah. Four. Um, but he's he really moves cool, really fast, but looks like he's got eight. Yeah, he uh, no CG on him, he's just like a cool puppet, so that's cool. Uh, I, I was a bit disappointed in the lack of fatalities because it's obviously for a slightly younger audience, I guess. Yeah, I think um, justine
0: came out. So yeah,
1: so you know, there really there aren't any spines being ripped out or anything. But um, but I say overall, it kind of delivers really what you'd want from a Mortal Kombat movie. A, a lot of one-on-one fist fights. Um, it's very, it, it's a, it's a, it walks a fine line, and
0: it deserves a lot of plaudits for what it does, which it manages to actually be a decent film and kind of stay relatively true to the characters of the game it's yes. based on. And stick to the same formula, like one-on-one fights in different it exactly arenas.
1: Sticks to the formula, which is something that Street Fighter really, really struggled to do, and they end up just shooting at each other and stuff at the end. It's just like that's there's no street fighting in this film, but in Mortal Kombat there is Mortal Kombat, so <laughs> can't, can't argue with that. So yeah, that's that was quite quite good. Um, but then I I thought so, it made me think of how disappointing Street Fighter had been. So I I thought, is there are there any good Street Fighter films? And one Street Fighter film which had good reviews was called Assassin's Fist. Street Fighter Assassin's Fist. This is on Prime as well, and this was made. Uh, oh, well, is this an anime or live action? This is live action. This was made and about it's, five and years this is ago. Based on the game. Yes, I'm intrigued. But by this. I've never heard of it. I'll okay. well, bear with me because this is the one I couldn't make through the whole film. Mm. So, it, it's got really good reviews, and it's basically this is a feature version of a web series. So it was originally a web series uh, on, online and on some YouTube channel. And, and it's two and a half hours long. So there, there's, oh, there's your problem. And I made it through 90 minutes, which was pretty good going. So in 1994, Street Fighter, the, the film with Jean-Claude Van Damme and everything, it tried to pack in everyone and everything. And that was a problem in itself. But this goes too far the opposite way. Because um, Assassin's Fist it focuses uh, just on Ryu and Ken, Ryo and Ken. Please, Rio. Um, yes, I insist. Yes, um, and it is so slow, and so it's about those two. And it takes, I mean, it takes an hour of screen time just for them to learn the Hadouken. So pff, you know where you are with that. So basically, it's about them being trained in this kind of rural uh, dojo place. And meanwhile, you get kind of flashbacks, a con- kind of concurrent subplot about their sensei and his training at the same dojo when he was a kid with his brother. So but those sections are really, really dreary and overwrought. So, um, but basically in the flashback, um, the brother, he used the hadoken wrongly. So he was banished and then he becomes Akuma,
0: who right. wants to learn
1: the dark Hadoken? Uh, anyway, so that's all that. So basically, that's basically it. Ninety minutes in, I got to, and all we've established is that there's a bad guy and a good guy, and someone says, "Oh, you have to make your own path," and and it's like I was thinking, you know, other films get this stuff out of the way in the first ten minutes, yeah. And I I've been here for ninety minutes, a, a whole movie's a whole Mortal Combat <laughs> worth, and all fun we got games. is just an introduction like the fight choreography is fine but you do you have to wade through endless sibling angst and really slow scenes along the way um why is this oh, got I, good reviews then i think because it's slow and it develops the characters in quite a detailed way which is fine because obviously it's a series so it's going to have more time to do that but just because you know if you'd have enough time you can get anything done can't you really <laughs> but there's but there's like this scene right where Ryo and Ken um, sneak out of the dojo to go to the city and like uh, go drinking and you think, oh, I might pick up here. This is where we get some actual street fighting. So they go to a street fighting den and get, you know, have a few drinks and that. And um, and they, they, you know, get in a circle, see these people fighting. And it's like, and then someone in the crowd says, oh, you guys look like fighters. You should give this a go. And I was thinking, right, okay, this is where it's going to pick up. This is where we're going to get. Uh, the kind of uh, Lionheart type bit where they kick some ass. But no, it, you don't see them fighting. What? They're invited to fight. It cuts to them getting drunk afterwards. And there's a comical moment where they turn around and see like, people being led out after having been beaten up. So it basically is saying, oh, they have beaten them up, but we're not going to show you that. We're just going to go back to them arguing and having their sibling rivalry. So, oh my God. there's even less street fighting than the 1994 version. <laughs> Jesus, in fact, we never even see a street. There's no street in it. Because it's all set in a rural dojo. It's just really <laughs> drab and portentous and dull. All mouth, no trousers. Shall I? What is this on Prime?
0: Yes. Shall I skip to ninety minutes in and watch? Yeah, for, maybe I'll you could just finish review it.
1: Before, yeah, I'll finish yeah. it for you, and then we'll. <laughs> I think I, I think <laughs> the part I got to was just where Akuma is in a cave or something like that. But anyway, it needed more, need more fighting, more stretchy arms, more green skin. Didn't have any of that stuff.
0: Right, I'm so, gonna watch. The, I'm gonna watch mm-hmm. the second. We'll we'll share the load. We'll hive, tag me in, and then I'll finish it off for us.
1: Okay, brilliant. Um, so I have still got a few more to get through, actually, here, which is a bit concerning because. I don't know, what are we have an hour and twenty?
0: Yeah. We're okay. Yeah, that's fine. I got two, but they are not too long, so
1: Okay. Shall I just quit oh, should we talk about the sixth day then? While we're yes, you last. know both both in the zone. Made in two thousand. Schwarzenegger, Deval, Rooker, Rappaport, Goldwyn. <laughs> I could go on. Um, Michael Rappaport is wearing a sit up of figs in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite a creepy premise to this film because um, basically Arnold Schwarzenegger is cloned and yes. and he comes back not realizing that he's a clone and finds that he is already at his daughter's birthday party um, so the idea is is that these shady cor- short corporate conspiracy happening to clone people and control them get customers get votes etc basically control society through cloning people um with a limited lifespan etc um it actually follows quite similar kind of story beats early on to total recall there's even i mean it's 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 the same kind of idea that he's like uh he's not exactly a blue collar worker but he's he's just a regular guy and he is he's just a family man and there's even like this company called repet which is just like recall isn't it really mm-hmm. so um and they offer cloned pets sort of thing um clets i believe they refer to the as. <laughs> um and it, there are moments where it's clearly aiming for some of paul Verhoeven's kind of broad satire but it never really hits the mark to be honest who directed this story i'm not sure actually might have to go and investigate this what are your memories of this film anyway my
0: memories of this film are that it well i'm a big schwarzenegger fan as is everyone my age and this was one of the films that like like a razor and end of days that i that i watch i would re-watch again but they weren't ones i turned to so I, i've seen six day a few times a good few times um but i it strikes me and i can remember like a lot of scenes in it they're flying through my head at the moment but it just strikes me as like a Like a real, like, middling film, and it and and it doesn't delve in it's because Arnie in it isn't his usual, like, rough and tumble, ass kicking self.
1: So it's like it's almost like he could be anyone. So it's, yes, yeah, it doesn't quite make the same sense that Totorico does, where it's like there's a whole secret agent alter ego type thing where he'd kind of need to be quite tough in order to carry out the stuff that he's doing in this he's just a, he is a family man and he is a clone of a family man and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So he can't really kick anyone's ass. I remember um, being quite cartoonish the way like Michael yeah. Rooker talks to his, his henchmen and stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it just, it very gently touches on deeper themes and uh, like with Robert Duvall's character, cause he wants to extend his wife's life. And there's this whole thing about him being unable to accept death and the kind of grief. Um, but it just rubs really uncomfortably against some pretty cheesy dialogue and clunky action. Really, it's not. It's not terrible. It's directed by Roger Spottiswood, by the way, who's just about. I know married. that name. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of him. I thought I'd know more of his films, but really, we're talking about Turner and Hooch and Air America and some classic classics and then. Shoot. <laughs> oh, Turner he and Hooch. Did write Forty Eight Hours. He did write ah. Forty Eight Hours. That's probably why he's fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, it, yeah it doesn't the film doesn't really explore kind of the ethics of cloning in any deep way but what i would say is it although it doesn't explore the deeper themes it does use the mechanics of close uh, of cloning in some quite fun ways so sort of thing like especially the 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 end the finale is quite kind of tense and exciting because of the way that cloning is used so so it mechanically uses cloning quite well it just doesn't care about the deeper th- um issues that cloning raises really okay so yeah it's, it's fine it's fine yep <laughs> you wanna, um, do you want to crack on with one of yours
0: well i mean yeah i've got two left so okay. uh, i watched the the old guard with Charlize theron which is on is on netflix at the moment and based on a comic of the same name have you seen this
1: it is on my watch list and i do um, like, like Charlie Theron a lot Okay,
0: I, I won't obviously I won't give any spoilers me, anyway, But what, um, this is going to be quite tough then to talk about without giving anything away. But what what I'll say is, in fact, should we discuss it together? Because yeah, I
1: mean you can give some. Is it worth watching? For I, I
0: I liked it a lot. Yeah, I really did like it a lot. Yeah, that's that's all I'll say. I was a big fan of it because otherwise I'm gonna. It, it it kind of develops quite nicely. Charlie Theron is really good in it, so I'm not going to say anything until next week. What I will, okay. until you've watched it, but what I will say though is the film I gave up on wasn't some webisode version of Street Fighter, Assassin's <laughs> Fist. It was, and this I watched this over two days, and I and and I both times I was tired. It made me tired, and I I came to the conclusion that like yeah, this is I'm just bored. And it is Interview with a Vampire uh, from 1994, right? With Tom Cruise, Christian uh, Slater, and Brad Pitt. Another gothic uh, horror. Yeah, this is the thing. I was like, oh, do you know what? Dracula was so good. I'm up for some more gothic horror, and I don't fancy Crimson Peak, so I'll, I'll check on um, I'll check on an Interview with a Vampire. So this is based on Anne Rice's novel, and it is a trudge. This it starts off with. Uh, the vampire of stat played by Tom Cruise. Um, he kind of finds Brad Pitt, who's immortal, and is bereft because of the death of his wife and daughter. He owns like a plantation, like a slave plantation in, in sort of like 18th, 17th century, whatever it is Louisiana. Um, and he is just moping around them and he just wants to die. Just wants the sweet embrace of death so he can just die and be done with Shuffle off this mortal column, just be done with it because he's gutted. So Tom Cruise rocks up and says how about I bite you and you live forever? And he says, oh, go on then. What he doesn't say is, hang on, that, I don't know if you were listening, that that is the polar opposite of what I actually want. Um, (laughs) So he bites him and when he wakes up as a vampire, literally, it takes like seconds in this film to turn into a vampire. When he dies and sits up, he basically goes, oh, this is shit, straight away. And luckily, he's got an immortal lifetime to reflect on that single mistake. So <laughs> so it's, it's like, what you what the film, I'm not even going to go into too much depth. Like this, it looks great and they are fine. They're kind of like hamming it up and the set design is great. What the film boils down to is them in a room in different rooms very nice looking rooms and Tom Cruise having a lot of fun and then occasionally getting angry and Brad Pitt moping and occasionally crying and then that they introduce at some point sort of about a third of the way through Kirsten Dunst who plays a character really well much like John Franklin as Isaac in um, children of the corn like a really commanding child presence and then you just have her shouting so it, and it goes. The scenes in the film r- feel really long, so they'll they'll it'll cut to them in in like a in a dining room and they'll talk and talk and talk and then it'll cut to them out in the town drinking a bit of blood and they'll talk. And I just thought this feels like it's been on for like two hours and it and it was like twenty minutes. Um, <laughs> and and then and also it, like lazily, I found out later on. They said something um, in the film that I thought it's an odd line, but then I found out later on that. It was kept in, it was just a line from the book kept in that doesn't make sense in the film, in the context right. of the film. So, there's a bit where when Brad Pitt realizes, like, actually, and that's another thing being a vampire in this is so boring. Every time you see, like, Tom Cruise just talks about how, like, when he's trying to talk, Brad Pitt, how amazing it is, and how you see everything differently. You can do anything apart from watch the sun, and and then when he is a vampire, when it cuts to them supposedly having all this sort of fun, they're just like sitting
1: in rooms, like like just looking at looking at the glass, and you're like so tedious. They did, yeah, and like especially when at that time as well, it's not even as if they've got modern entertainment yeah. or anything. They like didn't
0: that. even have a PS2 back then.
1: Exactly. So this is one or nothing.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, even if there wasn't one entertainment, because they can only come out at night, they would miss it. I say, well, what time is the film on? Oh, four in the afternoon. Oh, well, I <laughs> we can't watch that. We'll oh, have to wait winter, for it so on VHS. Right. <laughs> um, so um, the scene in it, the bit in it that I thought, what, is when they're in in this sort of plantation sort of thing in this huge dining room, and Brad Pitt says, um, "My, the slave. They was it my." The staff watch us drink from empty cups and eat from empty plates, and I thought why would why would that happen? why would you have a full staff because Tandy Newton is in it briefly as one of his sort of um staff, and I thought why would you why would that happen because you run the plantation you're the slave owner so why would you why would you tell people to bring in empty cups and plates and then pretend to eat in front of them what they would yeah. just think what but apparently in the book it's done because it's done to sort of confuse his blind father, so they uh. make the noises. But, but of course, he's not in the film. So it's like <laughs> the line. So it's like, okay. So um, it doesn't mean anything. Oh my God, yeah. that's bad. Um, so yeah, and it's just, more than anything, it's boring. And I was surprised because I remember liking it, but it's there's something, it's only about two hours and eight minutes long. Mm. But there's something about the long scenes and the fact they because they just, because they are bored all the yeah. time. And Tom, and it's like Brad Pitt moping and saying i'm really bored i wish i was dead and then tom chris goes "Nice, wicked fun and then but you don't see that fun so it's like boring to watch so yeah i I had to give up after about i think it was about it genuinely felt like about two hours but it was after
1: an hour i just said i can't watch any more of this i was disappointing because that's the kind of thing i'd I'd gladly watch again so again i remember quite i think i remember liking it um watch it again see what you think yeah i might do i might give it another whirl um It's directed by Neil Jordan, isn't it? He did The Company of Wolves, which is quite a good horror, like werewolf horror from the
0: 80s. He did something else that I really liked as well. Have you got his filmography there?
1: I do not. Um, The only other thing I know of his was The Crying Game, which is quite good, but obviously a very different film. No. One sec, before you move
0: on, I am going to tell you there was a film I saw on his list and I thought, I like that film.
1: Did he do that?
0: Did he do that? No. He did... No. Oh, The Good Thief. The Good Thief with Nick Nolte. I absolutely love that film. That's probably one of my favourite films, actually. So thank you for that, Neil. Yeah, and, and that's me, Dan.
1: Okie dokie. Um, right. Let's uh, go on to The Bounty. This is on Netflix. This was made in 1984. This, uh, it's the story of the mutiny on The Bounty. Uh it was a long-standing project for David Lean. Apparently, he wanted to make two films, and then he wanted to make a TV series. But none of this ever happened. So Roger Donaldson stepped in. He's the talented hack who made No Way Out, Cocktail, Dante's Peak, Thirteen oh, Days. No way out. They're just all good films. Species. Um, <laughs> uh, Yeah. So the basically, the captain, the admiral guy, is in court explaining how he lost his ship, the Bounty. And he says there's a mutiny and the main film is kind of flashback to how it all came about. Um, and the mutiny itself occurs after they, obviously this is set in like 18th century. The mutiny occurs after they land on a Pacific Island and some of the men go native with the local ladies put it that way. There's mm-hmm. loads of like top British actors in there. Anthony Hopkins is the, is the captain. Uh, Liam Neeson's in there. Bernard Hill uh, Daniel Day Lewis and Neil Morrissey is in there, believe it or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very young Dexter Fletcher as well. Um, Mel Gibson is the first mate and he's kind of the organizer of the mutiny and a sort of hero of the story. Um, it's, it's a film uh, about class leadership, obedience duty, and it's got a really amazing performance from Anthony Hopkins um, because he is portraying a, like a leader whose authority is kind of falling away. Uh, Cause he basically leads by status as in he is an officer. So the men should respect him, but mm. they don't have any respect for him. So as, as this becomes clear, he has to kind of meet out more and more harsh punishments. And that obviously pushes him away. It's um, <laughs> it's kind of like, um, I think master and commander with a bit of the new world in it. It's very handsomely staged and it's very well made. There's some nice Vangelis music, not his most distinctive work, but pretty nice. Um, I think that the only real down point is that they don't, it's like they didn't know how to end the film. It just kind of ends. And then there's some text comes up and fills in the rest. It's like, right, okay, I don't know why he chose to end there of all places. It was a bit weird, but yeah, I think it's, <laughs> If you are after kind of high quality, good looking, intelligent historical drama, which is quite fast moving as well, it's not boring by okay. any means. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's it's swift and fair amount of action and storms and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, Bob's your uncle. Really, is, is pretty good. And Mel Gibson does a really good British accent in it. Really? Yeah, which kind of surprises me really because. like i only recently found out that he's not australian which i was just assumed that he was australian (laughs) what do (laughs) you mean he's not australian he was born in the u.s and he lived there until he was 12 and then moved to australia and that's when obviously then he he got into acting with i uh, did not know that so he is a man with who would have developed an american accent then moved to australia and got the kind of the trans-pacific accent i suppose and then he's playing this Englishman. And it's does it's really well in it. So, uh, yeah, so that was pretty cool. And you see, he was 84. 84. So, he would have been pretty young. I, I don't know whether this is his first Hollywood movie after Mad Max. Yeah. I'm not sure. Because Mad Max was 79. He was pretty busy, I know, at the time. But still. Uh, yeah, that's, so that was good. Um, I'll do a quick two-minute trashing of Slaughterhouse Rock. <laughs> it was on Prime. This is late 80s trash horror. And it is a prime candidate for a future horror movie marathon, I've got to say. has Good. all the ingredients. Uh, it's got idiotic young adults. It's got gaudy lighting. It's got big hair. <laughs> constant tacky scares. Music <laughs> by a new wave band. In this case, Demo. Uh oh, Weird okay. dream sequences. So this college layabout, I think his name's Alex. I may have just made that up. I'm not sure. Anyway, let's call him Alex. <laughs> He's having, he's having these these horrible living nightmares, uh, and some of them are pretty cool. Like he'll just imagine that his own face is kind of rotting and there's worms coming out of it. Uh, He imagines that there's a zombie dude tearing his guts out, and he imagines that he's on fire and stuff. (laughs) Uh, So it's pretty full on. And it turns out, busy morning really. (laughs) He is. It turns out he's witnessing the deaths of a bunch of people who died on Alcatraz, Alcatraz Island. So. Obviously, the only way they think they can lift this curse is by going to Alcatraz with his mates. So this is um, the rock of the title, I assume. Yes. Uh, and he meets... He gets there and he meets um, this mysterious woman played by Tony Basil, who was the lead singer, I think, of uh, of Devo, the new wave band who did the music. Good. Uh, it's always good when you get a rock star just, just turning up in a film. <laughs> um, and yeah so she teaches him some supernatural stuff to to help him to put the ghost of the this serial killer to rest um and Meanwhile, the other kids are kind of picked off or possessed one by one um yeah so um Tony Basil is a very funny kind of sarcastic character. she just rocks up and is really um really nonchalant about all the like violence and horror that's going on, so it's quite funny um and it and it's genuinely quite an unpredictable and fast moving film. It's got a bit of the dream dream warriors in it, I suppose, and loads of cool practical special effects. So that's cool. Um and wh- and what's quite <laughs> nice about it is that everyone who dies comes back instantly as a, a kind of wisecracking ghost of themselves. Um so there's a bit of that American Wellwolf in London type thing going on there. Touch uh, of the frighteners. Yes, and that too, yeah. Um, I, I did look up some of the reviews of this, and it, it's unusually hated, um, <laughs> even by slasher standards. Like, it's really, really being it's slammed at the time, uh, and really bad IMDb rating. But I mean, I've seen a lot worse. To <laughs> be honest. I've seen a lot worse. And I thought it was quite good fun. So uh, it's nothing groundbreaking, but it's well made, and the script, uh, which is by two women, I think, it isn't. The absolute pits so yeah it's not bad slaughterhouse rock on prime
0: hey. I, hey. uh, just, by the way, I just stood up to sort of stretch my legs as you were talking then and i'm holding in my hand a waddington's teenage mutant hero turtles card game right and it's <laughs> it's and I on the front were going to say that <laughs> it's, got, it's got on the front leonardo with two swords donatello purple with his bow staff and then it's got yep. michelangelo red with a bow staff and Raphael, red with two sides so it's got the color of
1: michelangelo wrong and his weapon on the cover and that, it's an official that, that, there's a reason for that though isn't there because they um they, it was i think it was teenage mutant hero turtles as it was known as in in britain they um it was because of the nunchucks wasn't it but that's really odd. Though. But swords and knives are fine. I know. It, it, I think it's because nunchucks, they had like toy versions of nunchucks and kids were smacking each other in the head with them. Whereas mm. I suppose with a sword, they wouldn't be able to buy a sword. I don't know. It, it, all, the, they're, all the weapons are brown as well. So it just looks like they're all wooden. But yeah, it's weird they've changed the color of Michelangelo. Anyway, sorry, carry on. I'm just... Yeah. So, um, okay. What have we got left? How much time have we got left? Well, we've
0: ten- we got 15 minutes if we say the usual
1: two-hour thing. Okay, this podcast is just getting slowly longer. It's fun yeah. to edit. Uh, well, I've only got three left, and uh, so next one is *The Quick and the Dead*. This <laughs> is on Prime. Ninety-five. Um, yes, it was a revisionist western from nineteen ninety-five, directed by Sam Raimi, and it flopped pretty hard. Oh my god! Um, but it's got an amazing cast. It's got Sharon Stone, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Gene Hackman, Gary Sinise. Russell Crowe in his first American movie, Keith David, Pat Hingle from Batman fame. Um, yeah. So basically Sharon Stone rocks up in this town set in a wild west. She rocks up in this town and she reluctantly joins this quick draw competition. So they basically have a series of like one-on-one uh, duels. And over the next few days, we get to know the different competitors and why they joined their motivations and stuff. And, And as we get to know them better, the kind of the stakes ramp up and uh, Sharon Stone's character has a very personal beef with Hackman. Uh, He's sort of the de facto mayor. Uh, He basically just rules through fear. Um, Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. It's all right. Uh, Sam Raimi uh, and Dante Spinotti, who's a name I heard and I I now know why I'd heard it is because he was the cinematographer on Manhunter and Red Dragon, oh, and um, and also LA Confidential, so that it looks really cool and it, it's always kept very visually interesting and kinetic because Sam Raimi likes to keep the camera moving. Um, occasionally, some of the stylistic t- flourishes go a little too far. I'd say like there's a moment where someone gets shot in the head, and it's like. You see a shot from behind, and it's just a big hole through their skull. It's a bit silly. It's a little bit too cartoony at times. But um, that's always he's always done that, hasn't he? Yes, so yeah, yeah, it's so... a, um, And it's a fine line between like bold characters and, and just basic caricatures. But I think Raimi gets the balance pretty much right. And it and in the end, it does lead to some genuinely tense standoffs because by the end of it, you're like, okay, these are two characters that I actually quite like. And one of them's got to die sort of thing. So that's pretty cool. Um, Sharon Stone looks pretty rad, but I'm not sure she really sells the tough gal image. I uh, was, I remember this exact same problem. I, I, I think it's cool that she's not sexualized because obviously by that point, she, it was something that she was synonymous with after Basic Instinct and that. But I, I do think she's probably too young and pretty in this to really sell the... Um, mm-hmm tough girl image um but she's not bad and and at least and of course difference here is say in the courier she this small woman is fighting six foot men with her bare hands whereas in this there's no reason really why a woman couldn't be just as quick on the draw if you see what i mean so it's not too ridiculous um it does feel a bit like a kind of western movie greatest hits at times more like people kind of playing at gunslingers rather than sometimes you get like a, a Western, which feels like a really lived in world, you know, like McCabe or Mrs. Miller or unforgiven open range, as we talked about earlier, um, or <laughs> Jesse James, but this isn't really one of those movies. It's much more, much more in the same kind of, uh, because kind of vain is like young guns or Three Ten to humor or something, more of a kind of, uh, silly over the top action movie, but, yeah, if that's what you're after, then it's pretty good. So, and I can imagine, I can imagine watching it uh, multiple times and still getting something out of it because, you know, the characters are interesting in that. So, yeah, I quite like that. That was good. Oh nice it was a
0: nice little surprise. I wasn't expecting. Hmm. It's been a very long time. I think that was out when I worked in the video store in my teens. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I. I I've seen it since, so I uh, I um, was intrigued to see
1: what you say. So that's that's good. It is worth a watch, yeah. Uh, okay, before we move on to the final film, um, we'll just do a quick two minute trashing. Although it's not a trashing because it is in the mouth of madness. <laughs> oh, a nice.
0: 1995
1: film, yeah, which I watched on Blu-ray, a Blu-ray which is surprisingly difficult to get a hold of because it's never actually had um, a UK Blu-ray release, as far well, as I know. So. You can watch it on Prime if you rent it for money. Uh, but yeah, in Cash getting, money. Yeah, in terms of getting hold of it, I had to get the German version, obviously. Um, the, the German. <laughs> the title is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft's at the Mountains of Madness, which I believe that Guillermo del Toro has finally given up trying to make, so I guess we're not going to see that. Um, anyway, it starts off with Sam Neill's character being locked up in a padded cell. And obviously, then David Warner comes along, and he explains to David Warner how he got there. He says he was an insurance claim investigator who went in search of this missing author called Sutter Kane, played by (laughs) Yevgeny (laughs) Prokhorov. Who went missing? So he goes to this small town, and basically, weird stuff starts um, happening—quite surreal stuff. And he does—he does find Kane there. and Kane is saying that this mysterious race of interdimensional beings have been unleashed by his fans kind of clamor. Cause it's like the whole thing is about him being the superstar, um, writer who the fans believe in, in a almost like cult like way. Um, yeah. So uh, there's a lot of, it owes a lot to Stephen King cause like it's set that it's set in this like small town, small permanently autumnal town called Hobbs end, um, uh, which is obviously in like northeast, sort of main area. Um, and I've seen this film a few times, and I still don't think I fully grasp it. But I do think that's partly the point because I, I, I think it's really hard to make a film that sort of, sort of subjectively draws you into a mad mind and makes you question yourself. If you see what I mean? So, yeah, I like I, that about it.
0: I, Sam Neil it can do bonkers wonderfully. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, like, uh, I remember uh, I watched that film relatively recently. I think I think last year actually. And on your suggestion, and we managed to find it at the time. It was on YouTube for free for some bizarre reason, and uh, we watched it. And it was um, it was just really good fun. Jurgen Proknov is is perfect in it, and I, I love Sam Neil as we all do. Yeah. So, and I just remember being like really pleasantly surprised
1: by it. Yes, and it's um there's some really good practical effects like monster effects and stuff, um, and I. I you can't really say too much about it because it needs to be kind of seen cold, really. But I, I do think it's the last truly great film by John Carpenter. Uh, so it's definitely worth a watch. And you wouldn't want it to get kind of mixed in with his later releases, which were of diminishing returns. It sense. was in 95, did you say? Yes. Nice. Okay. So I think he'd already done like Village of the Dam by then. So the, the decline was on the way, but still, this was very good. Um, yeah. So that is In the Mouth of Madness, which can be paid for on Prime. Um, and finally, probably got about five minutes left just to just talk about Mallrats, yeah. which is just out on Prime. And I thought I'll give this a go because I remember watching it in my youth. I'm not sure how much I liked it in my youth, but still. Now one of the first things that struck out to me in this film was I always thought that this film starred Jason London from Dazed Mm -hmm. and Confused. And so I looked him up on Wikipedia and and it wasn't in his filmography. And then I realized that Jason London has got a twin brother called Jeremy, Jeremy London. Um, Turns out that Jason is a talent, unfortunately, because Jeremy (laughs) is Jeremy London and he just seems really twitchy and uncomfortable all the time. Anyway, it's a slacker comedy set in a mall. Jason Lee and Jeremy London are quite rightly dumped by their girlfriends because they're just useless guys. And L- because Jason Lee a
0: continually different. plays EA hockey on his Magadrive,
1: <laughs> it's amazing that. Um, and the the whole film is then basically scheming to get their girlfriends back, so they they, they concoct a plan to get onto this truth or dare or truth or date game show, which is uh, being taking place at the mall. Um, obviously the Organiser is Michael Rooker. Is Sven Thorson in this film? Yes, he yes. is the uh, security guard. Yes. Um, don't think he says anything. Um, it is not funny, and it's kind of sexist, to be honest. <sighs> None of the girls in the film are allowed to be funny. I don't. I just don't think Smith can, Kevin Smith can write women, to be honest. Uh, yeah. There's this whole creepy subplot about a fifteen-year-old doing a paper on the sex drive of adult men so she has sex with adults it's a bit weird um so anyway the 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 guys as in jason and jeremy they they win back the girls through pure like persistence and force and they don't really develop as characters it's not like they change they realize something about themselves to convince their partners that they're they're convince their exes that they're okay people they just keep going on at them and that's really it. The humour is really juvenile. It's either really crass, like, I don't know if you remember the stink palm thing. Yes, uh, yes. Or the topless fortune-telling. Or it's comprised of like really overwritten little mini monologues and pop culture references. One thing I will say is that it's obvious that Kevin Smith is an unapologetic kind of comic book and video game geek. Years before... Kind of nerd culture made it cool. So at the time it was made, which was mid 90s, I suppose it would have been quite unusual to have these nerdy references. But I think he's given geeks a bad name, to be honest, because (laughs) Brody, the Jason Lee character, is just horrendous. He's just horrible in it. He's like a real proto gamer geek, like in the worst possible way. He's like really angry and entitled and fragile and just vile towards women and he's constantly just bullying women and trying to make them out to look stupid so i really wasn't rooting for him at all and it, it the whole film looks horrible it's just it's really flat and it's almost entirely shot in like medium shot and the comic timing is nowhere to be seen so it's it's really not a very good film what about the size and fitting of Ben Affleck's suit <laughs> it is Baggy. <laughs> it's baggy. Thing is, it's baggy, but it doesn't it's it's almost like it's meant to be that way, clearly, because the actual sleeves don't really go too far, but it's still really baggy. Like the trousers are cute, they're billowing. And then the suit kind of he's quite broad shouldered anyway, but it still manages to hang off his shoulders. Uh, yeah. I the I think I
0: watched Red State of uh Of Kevin Smith and I and I enjoyed that. But More Rats, I did watch a few years ago. And I just I was almost like embarrassed at my younger self thinking, Yes, how dare you think this was good? You obviously just didn't understand because yeah, it's just oh, I don't know. I got the same vibes I did when I I had a few friends who really loved Super Bad. And when I watched that film, I just think, oh it's just it's designed for people to watch it and think, oh, that's what me and my friends are like. We, we're quick with like that. We're cool as well. No, I really hope I wasn't like any of the people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a film that actively made me like question and dislike my younger self, which not yeah. many films can do. So,
1: yeah. I, yeah, you know, I... and uh, it's like, okay, I can kind of forgive myself and my younger self. I've come to terms with that. But at the end of the day, Kevin Smith was a grown adult making this. So he wrote these words he wrote these characters he chose to make this film as an adult so there's no excuses really yeah it's how just... old would he have been when he made this film well i guess he would have been in his 20s uh i don't know because he made clerks uh probably two or three years beforehand didn't he? and then obviously he's getting a bit of money to make this mm. and it's really bad really bad uh uh, and almost, like there's so many lines, and anything with bloody Jason Muse, uh, you know, the Jay and, J and Silent Bob, anything in those scenes is just sounds like it's designed for to be quotable, but not in any particular context. Like they're just words like scoochie boochies and stuff. or what? So, like, the kind of things that people will repeat without it meaning anything. <laughs> It sounds crap, but... It is. You... It's really <laughs> yeah. awful. Like much worse. I, I feared it would be bad, but it was very, very bad. Yeah, I,
0: I, I feel there's no. I feel like there'll be no benefit in watching like the vast majority of Kevin
1: Smith's back catalogue. To be honest, no. I haven't seen any of his very recent ones. To be honest, his more serious work. So I'll, I might give it a go. See if he's developed. I'm guessing. You know, stuff like Tusk is not the same as Borat. So. <laughs> Well, it's two hours and one minute by my oh, count, so okay. that seems like a this
0: seems like a good time to stop it. But it was a good one, another action-packed session mm-hmm. today. And I, there are a few I really want to watch Street Kings. Um, yeah, you did talk me into that slaughterhouse rock, but I don't think I'm going to watch that because I want to watch that the next Horror Night, which I'm assuming in a tube.
1: So yeah. I'll hold off on that yeah so i immediately bought it on blu-ray so don't worry about that <laughs> i did panic german blu-ray or no it's actually i think it was re-released on 88 films who are another trash horror blu-ray are they like arrow video but just like real bottom of the barrel stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh, well that's our sponsor Sorted. <laughs> um, um, see, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll
0: end with I love you, and uh, I'll see you next Monday. Right. Whoa, hang on, we we, oh. we haven't
1: had our films of the week
0: yet. Oh, call the films of the week. Good, yeah, forget that. Well, I do you know what? It's a tough one. I'll hold off on the old guard because we're not going to talk about that yet. But
1: yeah, okay.
0: it for me, it will be a toss up between Dracula and Children of the Corn because I expected so little. Yes. from Children of the Corn. I'm going to say Dracula because it genuinely felt epic and I know I will watch that again. And, yeah. I, and I know, yeah, I, I I know I'll come back to that again. And it, and it, it made felt me very,
1: it,
0: it felt very unique. It felt like a very specific film that could only have been made then. Yeah. Because it's got like 90s, I love films from the 90s, that 90s grain and that perfect 90s cast. Yeah. But with that kind of throwback sensibility and all the yeah effects. So it felt yeah. like a, a, ca- a time capsule, so Dracula for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to say, I think if you're after serious drama, then The Bounty was very good. Very supposed by that. Great cast, great acting. Uh, but then if you're looking for something a bit more breezy than Quick and the Dead, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think I'd think i have to say The Bounty just because it it does resonate quite a lot more than... Uh, The other films on the list, and it seems, and and it's a good showcase for good quality actors. So yeah, I'd go with that.
0: I think this will probably be the only time ever in any list that the Quick and the Dead will be like the most recommended film. (laughs) I I didn't. I when you said that, then I thought, oh, this feels weird. But
1: (laughs) um, yeah, this was fine. If you want to go with, (laughs) Uh, yeah. So that's it. That's it. We finished everything. And yet we've yet to find the middle of it. And yet the beginning (laughs) is just around the corner. I am in love (laughs) 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 with another man
0: (laughs) (laughs) whose name sounds like a (laughs) gookit. So, yeah, have an awesome evening and I'll uh, I'll, I'll get on the editing bus. Okay, take care. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Quicker than dead.